Thank you for tuning into this webinar, Thieves Within Part 1, Are You a Victim of Your Own Employees? This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and human resource professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speaker is Cindy McSwain. She leads Employer Solutions Outsourcing Services Group. Prior to directing the outsourcing group, Cindy served AGH as audit clients for 10 years, working with a wide range of middle market, closely held, and family-owned clients. Cindy's clients cross over many industry sectors, including manufacturing, distribution, restaurants, retailers, healthcare, and not-for-profit. For many organizations, it's not if you're experiencing fraud, but where it's happening. Although small or medium-sized entities likely don't have the resources for sophisticated fraud prevention strategies, today's presentation will outline ways to mitigate the most important fraud risks by understanding where fraud is most likely to occur and putting some simple processes in place. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, hump Day Wednesday. I want to tell everybody thank you for joining us today. Um, this is a subject that's it's very near and dear to my heart because over the years as a CPA and in public practice, I've seen way too many small and medium businesses that have been actually victimized by fraud with inside their own walls. And it's because of this that I've actually developed the passion to, to educate others about what can happen, what businesses need to pay attention to, so that hopefully it doesn't happen within your organization. Uh, this webinar is actually the first part of a two-part series. Uh, we've decided to split it up. I've tried to cram it all into one in the past and found that it was, uh, I had to speak way too fast. Uh, today's webinar is going to focus on a higher level overview of fraud, and then the second part of this series is going to dig deeper into specific fraud schemes and specific internal controls that can be utilized, and especially those for smaller businesses. So for today's webinar, my, my goals are listed here. Um, I want to make sure that I provide you with a general overview of fraud. Uh, what it is, how damaging it can be. We're going to dig into what's called the fraud triangle, which are three factors that can lead to internal fraud. I uh, want to provide you with an understanding of why fraud happens and, and possibly how to, you know, some high-level ideas about how to mitigate it. And then at the end, I want to cover some red flags to work, watch for. Uh, in other words, the sights, sounds, smells, or the things that should trip your fraud sensors, if you will. And and as Mike said in his intro, it's not a matter of if fraud will occur in your workplace, it's a matter of when and what and how much damage is going to be incurred. So here's a little bit more information about the second part of this series. It's going to be on April 28th, um, some things that we're going to get into a little bit more in detail. And there's a link there on this slide, or you can just go to aghuniversity.com if you want to register for that in about a month from now. So as Mike mentioned, we're going to have polling questions throughout this webinar. Uh, we have to have those in order to be able to offer the continuing ed credit that's out there. So the poll is now open for our first one. And this just gives me a little flavor about uh, what your position is in the organization, whether you're um, an owner, CFO, controller, outside professional, you know, maybe you're an external accountant or an external auditor, or uh, whether it's something else of that, of that nature. Um, I have done actually this presentation to, to many different groups, and I have one tailored just to HR uh, folk as well. Um, you know, so this one is going to be, like I said, a little bit on the higher overview level. But again, uh, we're going to leave that poll open for just a couple more seconds, and then I think Mike will close that. Looks like it's closed. And showing the results here. 
it uh, looks like we have a little bit of a spread. Um, a few owners, um, then a lot of CFOs, controllers, people in the finance position, and um, a lot of others that are out there. Um, it's kind of a catch-all position, if you will. Well, let's get let's get rolling. Um, so let's define what it is that we're talking about. Everybody has to start this with a, a kind of a definition. So you're going to hear me reference the ACFE a lot today, and that's the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. That's the world's largest anti-fraud organization and the leading provider of uh, fraud education and training. Uh, that's also the body uh, that certifies uh, certified fraud examiners. So the ACFE actually defines occupational fraud as the use of one's occupation for personal enrichment through the deliberate misuse or misapplication of the employing organization's resources or assets. I don't like to read slides, so I'm not going to continue to do that, I promise. But in other words, if an employee is going to make their life better for themselves by deliberately, as in they know, knowingly and willingly mean to do it, they misuse their employer assets. Now that sounds kind of rough, but that's exactly what it is. So let's talk about some statistics. Now every year the ACFE publishes uh, what they call a report to the nations on occupational fraud and abuse. It's actually a pretty interesting report based on a study of over 14, 1,500 fraud cases uh, that cause over $3 billion in losses. Uh, you can actually find this on their website at acfe.com. And if nothing else, I suggest at least read through the summary of results and the conclusions at the very front and at the very end. It's kind of a nice encapsulated synopsis of, of everything. Uh, the, the midsection is filled with a lot of the details from the survey. Uh, but the typical organization, according to that survey, loses 5% of annual revenue to fraud each and every year. That's not 5% of net income. That's 5% of the top line. And talk about a hit to the bottom line. And how would it feel to increase your company's bottom line by 5% of the gross revenues? Now, the median loss caused by the frauds in this study was $145,000. And additionally, 22% of those cases involved a loss of at least a million. The survey covers large companies, small companies all over the board. So we're not just talking about you know, the other guy. We're talking about companies that we all fit into. Let's talk about duration a little bit. The median duration, that is the amount of time from when the fraud started until it was actually detected. In this study, the, the median duration was 18 months. That's a year and a half, and that's just the median, meaning there's some that are less than that and some that are even more than that. I've heard cases where you know the fraud can be going on for 10, 15, 20 years before anybody actually detects it. Now, these stats that, that I've listed here, they don't really surprise me. Uh, in my 20-plus years as an accountant and consultant, I have seen organizations uh, that have been affected by fraud over and over and over. So a few more statistics here. Um, approximately 77% of the frauds in the study were committed by individuals working in these areas. I don't think that's really any surprise. Now, the smallest organizations tend to suffer disproportionately large losses due to fraud. Um, a lot of times that's because more lack of internal controls. Um, so you know, if we're talking about a percent of the bottom uh, top line, they, they tend to suffer a lot more. Uh, the specific fraud risks that are faced by those small dis businesses, they differ from those faced by larger organizations. Um, certain categories of fraud are much more prominent at small entities than they are at their larger counterparts. 
and it takes time and effort to recover the money stolen by those perpetrators. Many organizations, and I see this in my client base all the time, are never able to fully recover. At the time of this survey, 58% of the victim organizations hadn't recovered any, zip, zero, zilch, zero of their losses due to fraud. Only 14% of those made a full recovery. So everything in between um, was a partial recovery. Yeah, oftentimes, employee fraud is difficult and expensive to prosecute. I've seen many business owners just literally give up on the prosecution process as it took too much time and attention away from taking care of their business. And then it's really expensive. I've also seen, um, and it's not funny, I'm, I'm sorry, I chuckle. Um, I've also seen uh, multiple times where a suspected fraudster, and they haven't been prosecuted, they merely leave the company just to move literally down the street to a similar position uh, to probably do it all over again. Now, in my time here at ADH, I've seen some very simple fraud schemes as well as well-designed, complex, and intricate ones that lasted for numerous years. I've seen theft of cash on hand. That's usually a biggie. Um, from simply taking it directly out of the cash register to some complicated kiting schemes. Uh, theft of inventory or supplies. You know, how about that as office supplies? It's not always things we think about, but it's there. Uh, fraudulent or inappropriate disbursements. See this a lot. Fake employees, fake vendors, paying for personal expenses out of corporate funds. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and then, then we have the whole issue of misreported financial statements. Uh, higher bottom line means a bigger bonus. I'm actually amazed, and I saw this again just the other day. Um, I'm amazed at how many companies actually include a bonus for the person in a financial position, like the controller or the CFO, based on the outcome of the bottom line. You know, what's to give that, what, what's any bigger incentive for that person who has control over the, what those financials look like to incentivize them based on what the bottom line looks like? You know, I mean, uh, we, we were working with a client just the other day that we had to go in and unfortunately tell them at the end of the year we needed to make some, uh, or they needed to make some rather large adjustments uh, that were all expenses and decrease their bottom line. And they started crying foul because that was going to impact their bonuses. Um, you know, so it, you know, if you're in that position, it's always wise to kind of consider making other performance metrics uh, for that bonus pool as opposed to just the bottom line. Now, there's also the entire subject of corruption. You know, that includes things like bribery, insider trading, money laundering, and, uh, and a lot more. In small and medium enterprises, fraud and embezzlement often involves a trusted employee. Worse yet, a trusted personal friend of the owner. Males, females alike, I've seen it both ways. Uh, it can involve, you know, the simple things like inventory or supplies, but on the most part, it involves cold, hard cash. And most times uh, that I've seen, the perpetrator actually thinks that they deserved it or they were owed whatever they took. I'm going to skip through a couple of those slides here. So how many of you guys out there, this dates me and this tells you kind of my age, um, remember Dragnet. You know, it was a radio, television, and, and motion picture series spanning over five decades enacting the cases of uh, dedicated L.A. police de detective. Uh, let's see, I think his name was Sergeant Joe Friday and his partners. Um, here we see Friday and his partner, Officer Bill Gannon. Uh, no, I wasn't alive when the ninth, well, I guess I, it, when it first aired in the 50s, I wasn't alive, but I do remember watching reruns. Uh, the originals in this, if you 
you remember were played by Jack Webb and Harry Morgan. Uh, perhaps you remember the 1987 comedy movie version that had Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks, or perhaps the 2003 uh, very short-lived television revival starring Ed O'Neill. Um, so I kind of wanted to have that as my setup for my wanted posters here, but I want to go through some examples of things that uh, are in the news or things that I've actually seen. Um, here's one that uh, has been in the news lately. It's not directly in Los Angeles where uh, Sergeant Joe Friday's territory is, but it's in nearby Pasadena, California. Uh, not one that I've been involved with, it's just one that I've seen in the news. For over a decade, there was an employee uh, for the city of Pasadena and their Department of Public Works uh, who was siphoning money from a special fund that was established for moving utilities to underground, moving them from above ground to underground, and they had a special fund set up to do that for 11 years. Remember I told you the median time of loss was about 18 months. This one was for 11 years. The employee was able to prepare and submit fraudulent invoices uh, from four bogus vendors, just made-up vendors. They were fake. There were very few, if any, controls in place, and this employee was uh, successfully caused the, the city to issue 189 checks that totaled over $6.4 million to these bogus vendors. That's on an average of about thirty-eight dollars to $40,000 per check. Now, if you're talking about a city's utility system, you're talking about big expenses. The case is still pending trial today. However, the city uh, actually had an insurance policy that was going to cover up to $5 million um, of the employee fraud. Uh, but that $6.4 million that I have listed there of embezzlement, it doesn't include the probable hundreds of thousands of dollars that are going to be incurred in legal fees. So the outcome of this case, prosecution still pending. So let's go. I don't want anybody to think that it's only something that we hear about or read about in the news and think, oh, poor guy, sucker, that can never happen to me or my organization. So the next couple that I have are actually that I've been involved with uh, in, in clients of mine over the years. Uh, these didn't necessarily make the news. Uh, typically when you're talking about a, a mid-sized, privately held family-owned business, it, it doesn't. Uh, but they were still devastating, none, none the different uh, to the business owners that were involved. The other thing that I want to kind of put out there right now is, you know, many of us also serve on nonprofit board of directors uh, within our communities. Nonprofits are just as success susceptible to fraud, and sometimes even more so, depending on the role played by the board. So keep in mind that your role, if you if you serve in this capacity as a board member, it actually puts you in a fiduciary, responsible position to act in the best interest of the organization, and it's actually a legal obligation that you need to be aware of as a board. So I'll get off of that soapbox. Um, so first case. This client uh, that I have up here sells and rents construction, heavy construction equipment, and they're located in multiple states. Top line runs around $100 million in annual sales. The company had about 30 to 40 branch locations, and this particular instance happened in Houston, Texas area, suburb. Uh, many, many of the construction workers in the Houston area, they, they don't utilize bank accounts. Instead, they deal in cold, hard cash. Um, sometimes I think that's hard for some of us to believe, but that's actually the area. In Houston, uh, not at their other branches, but in that Houston branch, 95% of the company's business was actually transacted in cold, hard cash. 
the purchase price, if you think about it, or rental price of heavy construction equipment, it's, it's pretty sizable. So customers would literally walk in there's $5,000 or $10,000 and more in their pocket to pay for this stuff. So the branch bookkeeper found a couple ways uh, that she was lining her pockets with this cash. The first way she did it, she would pocket the cash that came across the counter. Uh, second, to, to cover her tracks and show that the customer had indeed paid, she would apply the next customer's payment, which maybe was a check and not cash, cold hard cash, uh, apply that second customer's payment to the first customer's account. Then a third customer would come in and that would be applied to the second customer's account. This is a scheme called lapping. And oftentimes when an employee is using lapping, uh, it works for a while, but it becomes so complicated that they actually have to keep a side journal or a ledger to keep track of you know, what's going where. <coughs> it's a little bit like some of the Ponzi schemes that are out there as well. So this gal was, was really smart and she had two schemes going on. The second one that was doing was actually to modify the rental agreements and she was using whiteout. Yep, I said whiteout or liquid paper. It was unbelievable. So a customer would come in and pay cash for seven days of rental for a piece of equipment and laid that cash on the counter, uh, then she would actually take that agreement after the customer left and show that the equipment came back two or three days earlier than the seven days. So in, in that case, it would reduce the amount that was charged, but she never gave that receipt back to the customer because the customer actually had it for seven days. She would just pocket the difference in the cash. So um, at one point, this client was suspecting things, and so they asked me to come in and do a full investigation to see if we could determine uh, what was going on and how, how much was going home with her. It was difficult, um, you know, firstly, because cash leaves little, if any, paper trail. Yeah, there was a cash receipt book, and it was company policy to provide each customer that paid in cash with a receipt. Uh, but the funny thing was, you know, when the client first asked to see that cash receipt book, the bookkeeper had this wonderful excuse. She'd spilled coffee all over it. It was ruined, and so she, you know, had to dispose of it. Now all of the paper trail was gone. The lapping uh, was a little bit easier to track uh, because we could actually look at copies of customer pay uh, check payments and could look at the invoices, and that's where we kind of started seeing um, some different things going on. Um, in some cases, we actually had the client call their cash paying customers and ask for a written affidavit of their cash payment. Uh, that's a little tough to do, uh, but we really kind of wanted to get, uh, from a prosecution standpoint, some proof, if you will. In the end of this case, we came up with a solid $150,000, uh, but we suspect that the amount was, was way greater than that, probably more around the half a million to a million dollar mark. Now, this client actually terminated the employee for cause um, and, and wanted to legally pursue this case, knowing full well that the accounting fees and the legal fees could easily exceed the recovery amount. But, but to this business owner, it was a moral issue, and justice needed to be served. He was devastated, emotionally hurt. After several years and sizable fees, uh, the district attorney down in the Houston area just didn't think there was enough hard evidence. Uh, because of that lacking trail of cash. And uh, so they decided to not prosecute it on a felony basis. And, you know, unfortunately, my client uh, eventually gave up. You know, but even bigger than that, than the financial loss, was my client's loss of faith in humanity. Um, 
they were also frustrated because this individual, like I said earlier, um, literally once they terminated the, her, she walked down the street within two weeks of, of being terminated and was employed by yet another equipment rental business. When they went back and looked at her resume, she'd worked for four or five equipment rental businesses. She had gotten into a good deal. Um, you know, but the problem is, without a conviction, anything said to you know the new or possible employer, it could be considered slander. You know, so this this was a good deal for her. So in the end, um, you know, this case was attempted to be prosecuted, but it was eventually dropped by the DA. So this is my last example. Uh, another client of mine. This was a, a publishing company, and they had annual revenues smaller, uh, 15 to 20 million dollars. Uh, Commonly, like I said earlier, the suspect was actually an officer of one of the subsidiaries, a close, trusted friend of the primary owner. Uh, we were actually performing some procedures on the monthly bank uh, reconciliations, and we started noticing some wire transfers, and they were for nice round numbers, like $5,000 here and $10,000 there, $2,000 here. Um, this individual was actually a signer on the account, and had access to the general ledger. In the general ledger, we started looking, and, and these were coded in a bunch of different places. Sometimes they were various expenses. Um, one was even listed as an employee receivable with this person's name on it. So the bank statement only reflected the amount and the town, not necessarily the entity that was receiving the wire. You know, So we scratched our heads with it for a while. Um, and initially, the wires were concentrated with a couple small towns in the client's area. Then they started expanding to larger cities, and we saw one to Las Vegas, and all of a sudden the light bulb went out, went off. Um, we connected the dots and realized that all of these towns or cities where these wires were going to had casinos. So sure enough, um, you know, once we started digging, then we found that this trusted employee was pulling funds from the company uh, to fund her gambling addiction across the country. Uh, the owner eventually confronted her, you know, this trusted family friend and she confessed. Now what amazed me in all of this was, you know, due to their long-term friendship, she was retained as an employee, retained as an officer, no controls were really changed. Um, they established a note payable to the company and she actually eventually paid it back. Um, you know, but contrary to our advice, her role continued with a, a lack of the controls in place. Um, you know, so they could go back and, and do it right again happen. So um, to end that segment, I'm going to throw up here a, a second polling question. Uh, this one kind of wants to know what your experience is with occupational fraud. You know, have you ever experienced it personally? Uh, have you ever known somebody who's experienced it? Uh, I've only read about it, thanks goodness, and don't think it can ever happen to me. Uh, or you actually know somebody personally who has perpetrated fraud. I didn't throw one up there that says, I've actually done this myself. Um, hopefully nobody would actually answer that. So I'm going to let you guys answer that poll here quickly. And then um, looks like most of everything is in. So Mike's going to share those polling results now. Um, most of you, it looks like, have actually known somebody who has experienced it. Uh, some of you have, you know, so if I, I add one and two together, uh, over 50% of you have actually either known somebody or experienced it. So uh, that doesn't surprise me a whole lot. 
because um, I, I, I think it's fairly rampant out there. So let's move into uh, why. Why does an employee commit fraud, or what is the what makes the um, the atmosphere ripe for it? So, and in simple terms, that's exactly it. The environment is is right and appropriate for not appropriate. It's right and and, and enables them to be able to do it. So to begin this explanation, um, I'm going to use what's called the fraud triangle. So when all three of the factors that I'm going to talk about are present, it actually creates an environment rich for fraud. So the first leg is financial pressure. This is when an employee is experiencing, you know, some difficulty in their personal life. Uh, families experience layoffs, salary cuts, uh, mounting costs like college or a disaster happen. Um, I tell you, I've got uh, a couple of children in college right now, and, and I can relate to that. Um, it's pretty stressful and pretty expensive. Um, managers might feel uh, financial pressure to show positive financial results. So the second leg of the fraud triangle is for opportunity. This is a biggie. Um, fraud opportunity can increase in a variety of, of ways, but you know, perhaps layoffs within your organization leave fewer employees responsible for internal controls. You've got fewer people doing more things. Uh, opportunity is actually rampant in the very smallest of companies or organizations, and, and this is where owners have a single employee that they trust with absolutely everything. I see this factor a lot. I know a guy who ran a construction company, and he entrusted virtually all of the finances, this is a client of mine again, um, he entrusted everything to one individual. This guy got ripped off not once, not twice, but three times. After the first time, we laid out multiple suggestions as to how to segregate some of the responsibilities so that the one person didn't have control over everything. Now, he replaced the person after it happened the first time, but he didn't implement any of the recommendations because a lot of them, and, and we'll see this in part two of, my, of the webinar, talks about that owner in, in a very small entity like that has to do some of the things himself. Um, but he replaced but didn't implement any of the recommendations, and it happened again. Fired that person, got another one in there. The third time, it actually wasn't from a financial standpoint, but it was a salesperson who walked off with all of his clientele and pretty much shut his business down. Um, that it was a sad, sad case, you know, you, and you would think somebody would learn after the first time, but uh, that trust is always out there. The third leg of the, uh, the fraud triangle is rationalization. This is actually what I call the I deserve it mentality. Rationalization can occur uh, if your employees working more hours, if they feel poorly compensated or resentful or justified in committing that fraud. And over time, uh, believe it or not, employees rationalize their thinking that their feelings are justified and the company just owes it to them anyway. So when all three of these elements are present, uh, the risk of internal fraud increases. You've got the I need it, which is the pressure. I deserve it, which is the rationalization. And the last one opportunity is, well, I have the ability to do it without anybody knowing it, so um, I can rationalize that it's okay. So the ACFE, uh, they identified lack of management review and lack of internal controls as the most often cited factors that allowed fraud to occur. Now, there's no silver bullet that can prevent fraud altogether. Uh, so, you know, the preventative steps that we talk about, 
uh, they might help reduce or mitigate an organization's risk, but nothing's actually going to ever prevent it. So to reduce your risk of fraud, loss from fraud, it's important that internal controls be periodically reviewed, monitored, and evaluated by management. This is something that often gets overlooked because they assume somebody else is doing it. But given the current higher level of fraud risk, every single organization, big, small, nonprofit, governmental, has a compelling need to actually study the adequacy and the effectiveness of the internal controls. We're going to discuss some factors for you to consider in that process, and you may already be taking some, all, or going far beyond these steps, but I hope some of this is going to serve as food for thought um, as, as things you, you can do. So let's first discuss the lack of management review. Owners and key management as a group, including the chief financial officer, the controller, should review and discuss internal controls at least annually. And here are some of the things that, that need to be included in them. So sometimes this is the thing that gets overlooked and people just need to put it on their calendar to make sure that it's getting done. Or put it in somebody's accountability um, on their annual evaluations to make sure that it's getting done. So the first thing you want to consider is what are the assets that are most susceptible to, to fraud, theft, or loss? Uh, and it's going to be different depending on what industry you're in. Um, you know, it might be cash in a retail store. It might be inventory in a technology company. Um, cash, cash, cash. We always kind of need to look at that area. Um, look at where control areas that controls might be weaker because the number of personnel involved doesn't allow the desirable separation of duties. Are there areas where one or two individuals take care of absolutely everything? And we trust them, but we need to make good business decisions and make sure that there's segregation of, of responsibility. You know, consider, look back over the past year and see if there's been any changes in the staff structure that might have altered the effectiveness of controls that were in place a year ago. So, for example, when somebody leaves unexpectedly, a lot of companies reallocate to tasks just to get them done, and they don't always think about what controls they may have just compromised in that process. So it's always good, again, that's why we like to do it on an annual basis, to kind of consider what's happened over the past year. You know. Uh, Consider methods for raising the employee's awareness of ethics and fraud. It's really important that the tone at the top speaks loudly and clearly about ethics. Um, you know, consider an employee communication mechanism. Uh, this is a way for employees to communicate instances of possible fraud or misconduct. This can be like a confidential tip line, fraud hotlines, uh, information reporting portals. These are all great tools. You know, employees might be afraid to report suspicious activity in person, but they are comfortable doing it in a confidential or anonymous fashion. Management of any organization is actually the one that's responsible for designing and implementing systems and procedures to prevent and detect fraud. And along with the owners, board of directors, they're responsible for ensuring a culture in that organization that promotes honesty and ethical behavior. So I'm going to get back on my nonprofit soapbox here in a little bit, but for those nonprofit organizations, a portion of this responsibility rests with the board of directors. And it's often handled by the finance committee or an audit committee that's a subset of that board. You know, again, many of us serve on those boards um, as a way to support our community. And, and so 
think in your mind, when's the last time that your board actually reviewed the organization's internal controls? Um, if you don't know, it's a great question to, to ask at a board meeting and see what kind of blank stares you get. I'm one of those that kind of pushes that envelope all the time in board meetings. Um, you know, and unfortunately, fraud happens within in those walls of the nonprofits as well. Okay, back off the soapbox. Uh, so let's discuss now the lack of internal controls as a cause for fraud occurring in organizations. So let's again go back to a basic definition. What are internal controls? You know, basically they're actions that are designed to minimize uh, the potential for misstatement, misconduct, or even errors. I didn't say eliminate. They uh, minimize the potential. So internal controls actually fall into two broad categories that are listed here, management approach and financial policies and processes. You know, and I think the one that we think about the most are the financial policies and processes, which are going to be the segregation of duties. But uh, the management approach is really important as well. Ethical tone. Um, you know, looking at kind of who's in this group on, online with me today, I know this group's fully aware that the ethical tone of any organization is actually set at the top. We can't have uh, any do as I say, not as I do in the organization. If your leader is dedicated to setting a highly ethical tone, he or she also has to live and breathe it. Um, we have to communicate ethics in everything that we do every day. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, here at AGH, one of the things that uh, most of us do, I think, in our annual evaluations of our staff is, you know, we include ethics in there. And uh, what are our values, our organizational business principles? And we actually, you know, measure uh, and, and put accountabilities in there based on ethical behavior. Educating and training your employees. You know, just like many of you, CPAs are required to uh, actually obtain a certain number of hours of continuing ed. Um, we're actually required to have at least two hours of ethics training every two years as well. Uh, and we've actually taken that a step further and internalized our ethics training so that we can include all of our employees. So that, you know, again, trying to build that culture of ethical behavior. You know, what else can we do from a management approach? Um, I actually have an entire presentation, like I said earlier, on fraud in the workplace built specifically for HR professionals. Uh, and when I discuss it with uh, HR world about how the ethical tone of an organization is set at the top, we talk about when we create a culture in which expectations are clear and that workplace misconduct is not tolerated and ethical behavior becomes the norm, then the risk of fraud is actually lowered. Um, so again, you know, here's some ideas that can can go with that. We've already talked about some of them, but creating, disseminating, and training on organizational code of conduct. Does your business have one? Um, incorporating ethical standards and performance evaluations. I talked about that a little bit. Encouraging two-way communication through, you know, discussing ethics and leadership presentations, and and implementing a an employee uh, confidential communication channel. Um, so, you know, back on this two-way communication and a, a portal that's out there is that's actually stated as one of the most effective anti-fraud tools that an organization uh, can adopt. The ACFE reports that fraud's more likely to be detected by tips, snitches, um, than any other means, including, you know, external audits, internal controls, et cetera. Uh, our company actually utilizes something called Our Workplace, 
for our uh, internal communication and reporting tools. If you're interested, you can learn more about that at uh, ourworkplace.com. So another important thing to consider is your hiring practices. Considering doing background checks, credit checks on potential hires. This is actually a good way to spot a problem before you hire a potential, potential fraudster. Now, it doesn't mean that you should automatically throw out a candidate for having a few scars on their credit report. Uh, most of us have been there, done that. Uh, but it certainly provides you some information to consider when you're monitoring behaviors of that individual down the road. So we said there's there's two main things that we need to look at. One was you know management's review and uh, looking at an eth ethical culture. The other one is actually internal controls. You may have heard the term segregation of duties, and that's where we're going now. Uh, to properly segregate duties, uh, organizations need to split financial responsibilities amongst these three different areas. Um, someone to authorize the transaction. Who says it's okay to purchase something or to pay a vendor? Or to you know say this is a new vendor and a valid vendor? Uh, who says it's okay that the underlying inventory has actually been received so we can pay for it? Do you use a purchase order system? You want to segregate that from the person who has the control to record the transaction. Who has the ability to actually get into the general ledger and post those transactions or to edit things? The third piece that you want to keep apart is uh, someone that has custody of the related assets. And if we're talking cash, that means who has the ability to sign checks? or use credit cards, or who controls the inventory stockpile. <clears throat> and so going back to the who has control over cash and the ability to sign checks, if your person who is able to pay the bills and record that in the general ledger also has the rubber stamp to be able to sign, maybe they can't sign their name on the checks, but if they can sign uh, the authorized signer's name on the check, that control just went out the window, and that's really not segregated. If you have it, so so owners or whoever the signers are should be at least looking at the checks. Maybe it's um, after the fact, but you need to be looking at them. And if sufficient staff's not available, a lot of small companies it's not, then you can utilize an accountant or a third party to provide some, but not all of those checks and balances. Um, additionally, other comp Compensating control methods can be implemented, and like I just said, such as after-the-fact uh, transaction review. Uh, don't let after-the-fact doesn't mean two years down the road; uh, it means timely. You know, so um, if you, I'm going to go back to that slide. If you look at that more as a Venn diagram, because right now I have all three of those different uh, processes totally segregated. But if you start to squish that together and you start to see things overlapping, it's that overlapping area that actually begins to make the environment ripe uh, to be have the opportunity to be able to do something. So it's time now for our third polling question. And now that we've talked a little bit about controls, we didn't talk about very much in specific, but you know, in your organization, what control do you consider to be the most important? Um, and you know you can pick one, two, or all of these. I think um, is it that you know reconciling those bank statements? Uh, do you require your employees to take vacation? I can't tell you how many times that that's actually been uh, when a fellow employee has snitched on somebody uh, because they're covering them for for a week or two weeks, and they're starting to question about how um, how they were doing something. 
uh, or is it that you have actual physical security over the assets, and that includes cash, or is it actually all of them? So it looks like most of you have answered now. Mike, thank you for um, showing those poll results, and oh, bravo to all of you, most of you. Um, they're, they're actually all very important, um, and, and it looks like 88% of you said all of the above. You know, there's no right answer in there, but any single one is important or they're all important as well. So to wrap up today's presentation, I want to move into, you know, uh, some of the red flags that you can watch for in your, in your organization. And most of these are um, employee behavioral type issues. Uh, but it's but it is important to kind of look at that. So just as a refresher here, let's go back to that fraud triangle we talked about. And remember, when all three of these elements are present, the risk of fraud increases. I need it, the financial pressure. I deserve it, which is the rationalization, and the opportunity, which is well, I have the ability to do it without anybody knowing. Again, when all three of those are present, that when our, uh, the ability to, to do something actually goes up. Now, as a, as a caution, before any of this, I want to make sure everybody knows that, you know, any of these red flags, that's not going to automatically indicate that fraud has occurred, um, but follow-up is, is critical. Uh, I don't think it's, it's right for anybody to go out and, uh, you know, start pointing fingers and saying, hey, because this is a red flag Cindy mentioned, that means you're stealing from me. That's not the case. Um, but it's something that everybody kind of just needs to keep in, in mind and, and watch. So if you have an employee that's living beyond their means, um, you know what you pay your employees. You know pretty much what they make. And if, if you have, you know, an individual who's making $40,000 a year and all of a sudden they've, uh, you know, purchased a million-dollar home and they're driving a Bentley car, um, taking extravagant vacations, and you know a little bit about their family life, and you know they didn't actually inherit anything, or that their spouse isn't um, in a hugely high-income position. And, and those are extremes, but in, I think you get my point. You know, maybe it's something that you should you should consider. Um, if that employee never wants to take time off, um, I know we have many many workaholics, uh, but it is important that they take vacation time, and not just a day not just two days. Um, it needs to be long enough so that somebody can actually cover their work while they're gone. Um, you know, also, are they unwilling to cross-train a fellow employee to do their job? Um, it, it's a sign because, you know, if they're doing something fraudulent, they don't want anybody else in their business or to be able to see or identify maybe what it is that they're doing. How about the employee that always has an excuse? Uh, whether that be, you know, I just haven't had time to do it, or I can't, I, oh, I forgot to print you that, that management report that you've asked me for. Um, you know, it, excuse, I make excuses too. Um, and excuses are fine in some circumstances, but if it's repeated and repeated and repeated and they're never getting you what you want, uh, that should show, that should raise a little bit of a red flag. Uh, significant changes in employer employee behavior patterns. Uh, you know, if, if you do see something that all of a sudden this, this person just isn't acting like they normally used to, maybe something happened in their personal life. And, you know, people keep their personal lives personal um, and, and sometimes don't want to share 
But if all of a sudden you see a, a huge change in behavior pattern, you know, it's like, what's, what's going on with that individual? Maybe they're experiencing financial difficulties and you know that. Um, you know, one way to kind of look at that is, uh, you know, what, what kind of garnishments uh, do they have on their payroll? Uh, you know, what are kind of things that, that you know about? And, and I run a payroll service bureau here at AGH too, so we see garnishments all the time. And most of them are pretty typical. Uh, you know, there's child support ones out there. That, that's the biggest one that we see, and, you know, that, that doesn't, I don't think, bother anybody too much. But when you start getting into the ones that are, um, are credit-related or you, you see a huge garnishment come in, I saw this at a client not too long ago, uh, from the IRS collecting, you know, 10 years of back taxes. Um, it happens out there. you, you got to know that if you start taking more and more and more and more out of that employee's check that they're going to have some personal financial difficulties. So again, it doesn't mean that they're they're doing something illegal, but it is something that you kind of need to um, be alerted of. Um, how about if, if you see an employee that's exhibiting control issues? Again, they're unwilling to share, share duties, or they have unreasonable answers to any of your questions, kind of a spinoff of what we talked before. Don't let the word, that's just the way it is, or I can't explain it become commonplace. I see way too many um, business owners uh, that just get frustrated enough because they have to keep asking the question and keep asking the question that eventually they quit asking the question. Um, if you have a fraudster out there, that's what they're trying to do. You know, they're trying to get you to just give up so that they can go on down their, their happy little road. There's always an explanation for something. And if you or your employee can't get to the bottom of it, then consider hiring some outside help to just look at that specific issue. Um, numerous overrides, a lot of whiteout. Uh, you know, you remember, you, you might think this is crazy, but remember that story I gave you about the equipment rental company in Houston? Um, I remember opening that file cabinet and just kind of going contract by contract by contract, and I bet 90% of them had whiteout on them. Um, you know, nobody ever got in that file cabinet. It was in the bookkeeper's office, it was under lock and key, no better, nobody ever looked, uh, decided to look at it. Um, some additional red flags here. If you have an employee that's unable to reconcile accounts on a regular basis, uh, significant balance sheet accounts should be reconciled on a regular basis, whether that's monthly or quarterly, uh, cash, monthly. N nothing uh, less frequent than monthly. Um, but, but this includes and isn't limited to cash, but accounts receivable, inventory, accounts payable. Um, and again, I can't say this enough, bank reconciliation should always be completed monthly. And they can, you know, we're, we're in a technology environment where, you know, we can get our bank, banking information online every day. So there's no excuse why that bank statement shouldn't be reconciled within the first five days of the following month. Your level of concern should raise upon continuous excuses from an employee repeatedly that's too busy to get it done. You know, there, there is a way to get it done. Um, unexplained variances. Again, there's all, there's always an explanation. It just has to be figured out. An employee that's trying to cover up fraudulent activity, they might attempt to bury it in various general ledger accounts. Uh, so be on the lookout for account reconciliations with unexplained light items or the label of other. Uh, I, some of the times in, in the cases that I've worked with, we look at the bank reconciliation and there's a line on there that just says other. 
well, what is that? Well, it's, you know, kind of the what it, this is a famous line in the accounting world, but what it takes to balance. Okay, you should be able to reconcile that thing um, down to much closer than that. There has to be a tolerance level in there. I mean, you know, at home, mine's reconciled to the penny, and my husband laughs at me about that, but, um, you know, what is your tolerance level for reconciliation? If you see a large number of adjustments, um, especially where we were talking about the lapping um, incident earlier, um, you know, you're going to see a lot of a lot of adjustments in your general ledger. And I'm talking a large volume, not necessarily large dollar amounts. So don't be afraid to periodically look at the general ledger detail uh, for significant accounts. Inquire about large quantities or significant dollar amounts of adjustments. Uh, the really crafty fraudsters, they're good at weaving a very complex and confusing web, you know, like the house of cards. Also, be aware of unusual discrepancies between actual and budgeted results. I have a lot of companies that don't feel like they need to have a budget. Well, it's important from a standpoint of running your business and know what, what you think your future is going to look like, as well as it's a great control from an accounting standpoint uh, when, when it comes to internal fraud. Uh, it serves as a measuring stick for how the organization is performing. And any variances between the actual and the budget, they should be logically explained. It happens. We all have variances in our budgets. But, uh, you know, for example, a major budget overrun in supplies expense. Well, be able to explain that. And, and the person who's dealing with that needs to be able to come up with that explanation. So we're kind of coming to the end here. And uh, this is our last polling question for the day, I promise. Uh, but I'm curious to see what you've learned today. Um, you know, so some of these are a little comical, but, you know, was this scary? I'm going to start paying better attention. Um, you know, did you actually pick up a few things today out of this webinar that you might go back and, and implement in your own organization? You know, does, do you think your organization has it all under control? And, and lastly there, you know, if, you, if you've got something that, again, don't want to ask um, online or anything like that, uh, I'm, I'm more than happy to give you a call to follow up later. Um, it, it, it's funny, I've given you stories today on some of my clients. Uh, they're not all like that. I, I have some clients who have very tight controls, uh, and the organization does have it all under control. So uh, Mike's going to share our poll here. And, you know, for the most part, uh, some of you, it sounds like, got some suggestions out of here that you're going to take back to your organization. Um, I'm, I'm happy to see that there are 13% of you that think your organization has it all under control. Kudos to you. Um, keep going and, and just keep monitoring these, those things on a regular basis. And uh, for, that, for that group of you there with number one that this is scary, um, you know, that, that's, that's the purpose of uh, actually us doing these webinars is to get out and, and educate uh, folk out there so that, you know, maybe you can help prevent this in the future. So as a recap uh, today, I, I, I want to remind you that it's not if fraud is going to or, um occur in your organization. It's, it's more of a matter of when, um, what, and how much damage you're going to incur. Uh, so, you know, if, as a reminder to the very front on those statistics, if the average fraud loss is 5% of gross, gross revenue, that actually equates to $50,000 for every million dollars your company or organization has in the top line. And even for, um, you know, small entities that, um, you know, have a half a million dollar budget or a million dollar budget, that's a lot of money. And for those of you with larger organizations that have, you know, 20, 50, 100 million dollars of revenue, um, that becomes a very sizable number very quickly. 
So hopefully, uh, you know, I've helped you to understand uh, occupational fraud, what it is, what the potential impact is. Um, you know, consider using that fraud triangle to evaluate uh, areas of risk in your organization. Um, hopefully you have a little understanding of why it happens and, and what things can do to mitigate it and then some uh, employee behavior red flags that, that could potentially need some follow-up. So again, as a reminder, we kind of stayed at a really top level today. Um, so again, I want to invite you to join my next webinar on April 28th. Uh, we're going to go into a lot more detail about specific fraud schemes that are out there in the, in the various areas of the balance sheet and the financials. Uh, and then we're going to talk about specific controls that you can implement and even those for, for very small businesses. Um, you can sign up for that at AGH University, and like this one, it's completely complimentary just so that we can do some education out there. So in, in conclusion, this is my, my team of little fish against the big fish. Um, you know, cliches out there, it takes a village, everyone plays a part, or if we all work together, um, and, and if we all work as a team, we can, you know, fight off that, um, potential fraud that's out there. So again, I want to thank you for joining me today. I hope you have a great rest of the day. I think Mike's going to come on and close us out, and then we're going to see if there's any questions. So Cindy, we did have two questions come in. The first one being, um, what's the number one area to look at if you're an owner or an executive within a business to kind of help mitigate that fraud risk? Um, I'm going to say cash, cash, and cash, um, because that's typically the biggest I say cash is king. That's typically the, the biggest area of where something's going to walk out the door in most organizations. Um, you know, and that we're going to spend, like I said on our next webinar, we're going to spend some time in the area of cash, um, some of the different schemes that are out there. But, you know, I've, I've seen companies who are internal fraudsters in companies that set up fake vendors. Uh, that's pretty common. Uh, they set up fake employees. And uh, so that's two of the areas in cash. And the third one would be, you know, use of credit cards. Uh, I've actually seen in, in a couple of organizations where uh, somebody internal kind of mimics or gets very used to seeing what the personal use of credit cards might be or what the use of credit cards might be and actually get one of, one of their own on a company account and start spending at similar stores or similar locations, uh, but just buying stuff on a personal basis. But then it, they think it kind of helps them to fly under the radar a little bit. So cash truly is king in, in every organization um, where, the, you know, where the controls need to be looked at probably the hardest. Good question. All right. Um, the other question that came in is, how do we be proactive and manage the environment so it doesn't encourage fraud? This question came in before the internal controls, so I'm not sure if the controls address all of that or part of it. but. We'll pass it along. Well, you know, and I spent quite a bit of time today on um, environment and, and culture, you know, making sure that that is right. Um, and again, that starts at the very, very top. And so, you know, that kind of needs to be addressed by the very top management team and need to make sure that you include your human resource uh, person in that group uh, so that, you uh, you know, you start setting that culture to say, you know, fraud's not going to be tolerated here. Um, and additionally, it's kind of like um, even, even, you know, theft prevention. If you, if fraudster sees that there's a video camera, they're going to be a little less likely to, you know, they know that the company is serious about it. Now, um, 
you know, video cameras don't necessarily have anything to do with some of the internal fraud that we talked about here. But, but if a fraudster knows that somebody's watching, somebody's checking, somebody's, um, you know, there's, there's communication portals out there, somebody might rat them out. Um, if they're aware that this is really an important thing in the organization, they're going to be less likely uh, to, to do anything with it. So that, that culture of the company really, really is, is an important thing to, to make sure that your employees are aware of that, it, you know, we only tolerate honesty. We will not tolerate dishonesty. So like that example that I said, one of my clients that um, it was a close personal friend and didn't terminate the person. Um, let them continue on in their position. You know, what message did that send out to the rest of the organization? Hey, it's okay. It's just a little slap on the wrist. So, you know, it, it almost uh, it encourages others that, you know, they can get away with it and not even get fired from their job for it. So, yeah, corporate culture is, is highly important in this area.